welcome to Passive Attack, the Asset First podcast. Steve, one thing that's becoming more and more odd-looking in recent weeks is just the disconnect in the US between the economy, US economy and global economy, and Wall Street, which seems to generally go from strength to strength, and then the tech stocks going off even higher, but then becoming very volatile in the last few days. Is Main Street right, or is Wall Street right with the perceived valuations of the economies and the stock markets? It's an interesting question. A, a lot of people are utterly convinced that the market is wrong and that index levels should be substantially below where they are. I think those people are focusing far too much on one index. It's an important index, like the S&P 500, of course. I can understand why that draws attention. But if you look beyond that, and even if you look you know, just beyond the sort of mega tech stocks inside the S&P 500, then it's, it's, it's a slightly different story. The question itself is people who are utterly convinced that the market is wrong and it doesn't reflect reality. The question I would pose to them is why should the market reflect reality in the sense that the S&P 500, for example, reflects the realities that are apparent in the top 500 largest companies by capitalization in the U.S.? That's the reality they should reflect, necessarily the uh, reality as we see it on the ground or, or from the perspective of a broader economy. Again, if you look beyond the S&P 500, what you've got is a good valuation levels, in my view. You know, you've, you've got index levels that are substantially below their prior peaks. And, you know, in different regions, that ex- uh, that extends to different degrees. But so, yeah, it's, the, the answer to that one is mixed. I, if you ask me, I think U.S., Stock prices look a little bit toppy, but not that much. You know, I'm not afraid of them. This phase in the business cycle, I would, you know, I want to hold more equities than I normally hold. Broadly speaking, US valuations are not putting me off. There are some sectors where I might, uh, I might have more or less than than normal because of because of those valuation levels. It, it, essentially, I, I think that's what's missing. It, it is that markets aren't reflecting the full impact of the pandemic on the economy, because that's not what the markets are there for. The markets are there to find the price of stock in particular companies in uncertain conditions. And it's, it's, if you take that uncertainty, if you can compare the uncertainty that's, that's around today with the uncertainty that was around in late March, then clearly the world today is a far less uncertain place than it was in March. We know much more about the pandemic. We know much more about the policy response to the pandemic as well. So naturally, uh, equity markets are justified in being higher than they were back then. Do you think, therefore, we're justified that the US market is at a higher level now than it was pre-pandemic? To some extent, yes. The sectors that have driven the run-up in the returns recently. Some of that is justified, in my view. I mean, it's a mixed picture, and there are some stocks in there that probably aren't justified. You know, it, it's there are one or two that it's very difficult to understand why they're priced the way that they're priced. But some stocks have benefited from what's happened during the pandemic, and therefore they would justify a, a higher valuation, especially if those benefits are expected to persist over time, which... I think is reasonable in some instances. So it is a mixed picture. The stocks that have really influenced are those, the top, the Amazons, uh, the tech stops, which make up a huge proportion of the S&P 500 now. Does that 
perhaps not leave us a bit overexposed using S&P 500 as, uh, for our exposure to the US? Or are these the ones that benefit most, so therefore we stick with them? Six of one and a half dozen of the other. It is the reason that we don't allocate on a purely global basis. If, if we were to allocate our equity exposure in line with, say, the world index, then we'd end up with something like 60% of our assets in the US. And because tech stocks in particular are such a large proportion of the S&P 500 or a large proportion of the US market, whichever index you're using, then you're going to end up with, with that, that concentration. And then if you, you know, there are some other stocks, you know, if you, especially in Asia, if you take Japan and, and some other uh, Asian economies, Taiwan, South Korea, things like that, that, they're also quite tech heavy. So I might be concerned about that if that's what we were doing. But I'm reasonably happy that we're not overexposed to any particular sector. And at this stage in the business cycle too, I, I'm, not, I'm not averse to having a slightly overweight tech position. The valuations feed into this analysis you know it all things being equal i'd be happy with it maybe we'd tilt towards it at this stage of the business cycle but the valuations are having that there are probably other areas of the market that we want to expose to but we've got that as a natural result of not slavishly waiting according to uh, uh, capitalization on the sort of global level i'm just looking at a chart now of from march actually from end of february and us is the leading equity market in the world of the of the major ones um followed by japan and not far behind being europe and then pacific um they're all up between seven and ten percent and then lagging off the bottom is the uh, uk with FTSE 250 and FTSE 100 both down about eight percent from pre-pandemic so no sign of any recovery from the stock markets there what's the difference why is the uk lagging so far behind the other western markets there are quite a few differences, actually, but uh, I, I suppose the, there are two two chief differences, I guess. One is that the UK economy is, compared with our peers, uh, the UK economy has been affected uh, and is more vulnerable to uh, trends in the, in, in the pandemic. So the makeup of our economy is a little bit more, we have greater weights to those sectors of the economy that might be more uh, at risk from uh, the persistence of this you know the pubs are an obvious example you know uh, restaurants theaters things like that that we have a reasonably high proportion weight economy there and it's been affected so you can you can see that if you look at the look at the second quarter uh, results the uk economy the decline in the second quarter was was larger here than it was in in uh, in some of our g7 peers as well so that that that's one reason it's also, I mean, incidentally, that's one reason also to expect us to recover quickly. The second one, of course, is the uncertainty attached to um, Brexit um, process. It, look, it looks quite, you know, we look increasingly close to a no comprehensive free trade agreement outcome, if you see what I mean. That looks quite likely, and, and it's, it's just the uncertainty that's associated with that. So, yeah, those are probably the chief chief areas of concern. And if we do end up trading on WTO terms... How significant is that headwind for the UK over, say, the next five years? Should we be revising down our expectations of the UK market? Post-pandemic, we were quite bullish of future returns from the UK, from the levels it reached at that point. What do we think now? In, in terms of valuations, I'm still very keen on UK equity. I think they're really super attractive. What I don't know is when that valuation differential is going to manifest in excess, in, in higher returns, you know? I, I suspect it's after we know precisely what the relationship between the UK and, and the European Union is going to be. 
And then that gets muddied with, okay, so if we have a bad relationship, do we get much better relationships with the US and, and Canada and New Zealand and Australia and things like that? You know, so so it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a messy picture, but purely from a valuation perspective. And if you, if you shift your focus from the immediate to a more reasonable time frame, I mean, the immediate is not a reasonable time frame in which to, to understand the investing, or, or at least the way we do it. I mean, there are others that... Uh, they're engaged in different strategies and things, but we're long-term full cycle invest. If we shift our focus to three years hence, what's really going to affect the performance of the equity market in the UK really is probably our emergence from the pandemic. The chief influence on the UK economy moving forward is our recovery from the pandemic. It's how the pandemic affects the economy. It's the policy response to the pandemic. Brexit is a smaller influence on how well we'll do. It's not to underplay the the scale of the Brexit issue. It is just to acknowledge that the pandemic is such a large issue and that, that that's going to have the dominant force. I, I think, you know, even the, the governor of the Bank of England said something very similar reasons. So I, I'm not being particularly contrarian with this one. And thinking back again to, for instance, Europe being, I would say, surprisingly strong at 9% ahead of pre-pandemic levels. Is that reflected currently in business confidence across Europe on uh, purchasing managers' indices? What are they saying at the moment? Well, here's the V-shaped recovery hypotheses. The PMIs have went very far down and now they've bounced back. Undoubtedly, we are in the recovery phase. The, 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 The question you might ask is whether we stay in the recovery. The worst of the economic damage was done during the periods of general lockdown that took place elsewhere. Of course, there is some uncertainty uh, with regard to targeted lockdowns and and how they'll affect various parts of the economy, the services economy, the manufacturing economy, construction, things like that. But by and large, economic data has been really strong. But that was an inevitability. If you compare the performance of the economy now to the performance of the economy at the height of the lockdowns, then any numbers are going to look good. The question now is, how how do we sustain gains from this point onwards? Turning now to property, it's been in the news a lot of late, mostly to do with UK-based bricks and mortar funds, which have had people not being able to exit them because bricks and mortar can't be sold and they're putting a protection in place, a lock to protect existing investors. Now, that's not the case for our property exposure where we're using um, REITs, um, which remain totally liquid but um, nonetheless, there are still significant headwinds in the property sector. Questions we're frequently getting at the moment relate to when investors are rebalancing investment portfolios. It means that at the moment they need to buy a significant slug of property to make up for the fall in value of the property funds over the last few months. Is that justified and a wise thing to do when property looks a bit wobbly and the outlook perhaps for office space looks a bit bleaker than it did and retail also doesn't look so good should we carry on holding reach property exposure you're actually asking a sort of natural contrarian whether you should buy stock in companies that are, have a lot of bad news attached to them so i mean it's again we're full cycle investors so we're going to have exposure to important parts of the economy throughout a full business cycle so we're going to have REITs even if we're not so keen on the immediate outlook for REITs. It's a mixed one. REITs are sort of cyclical stock. So if I'm right about us being in the recovery phase, and if the recovery phase sustains and we move into a period of expansion, then you would expect REITs to do reasonably well in that period. Obviously, there are some 
there are some concerns about the, the future of retail and city centres and things like that. That was a that was a trend that was apparent prior to the pandemic, by the way. I mean, this is I'm not really seeing the pandemic as a paradigm shift in any of the ways that that we're operating uh, on a societal level. I, I view it more as an accelerator to some of the trends that were already existing. And it's it's our REITs, the REITs fund that we're using is a sort of global one with quite a diverse set of exposures. I, I think it's sort of, you know, it's, it's got quite a bit of industrial and residential and retail stuff in there as well. So it, it's, it's fairly diversified. And I think there are some parts of the property market that will benefit from what's going on, in fact. So fingers crossed that I'm right about that, that general sense. I'm, I'm happy to hold REITs at this moment. This is one of the sectors that we might consider overweighting at this period of the cycle, but it's not one that we probably will, given the extent of some of the concerns that are out there. So yes, if you're rebalancing, I mean, that's the whole point of rebalancing. You're rebalancing. You should replenish your exposure in in parts of the portfolio that have gone down. There will, or I guarantee you, there will always be a part of the portfolio that isn't doing well, and that's the nature of the beast. Hopefully, as an active asset allocator, hopefully it's the part of the portfolio that we've underweighted or that have changed. But yeah, absolutely, it's 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 in there for a reason. It has plenty of, of beneficial aspects to it over the full course of a cycle. It's pretty likely that at some point in the future we'll look back at these low REITs prices and think that was a that was a buying opportunity. So as full cycle investors, yeah, naturally you know, rebalance now. Yeah, I, I agree. A number of the top performing multi asset funds at the moment have got very high US equity exposure for UK balanced investors, and it doesn't really sit quite right with me to think that that's what they're offering to end retail investors. It doesn't seem right for the long term. Uh, objectives of those clients. So final question today, we can never run one of these without taking a look at the fixed interest markets. The prospect for negative rates in the UK and the US, is it more or less likely than when when we last spoke? I think it's less likely. Given everything that we know today, and assuming that there isn't a significant deterioration from this point on, I think we will not see negative uh, a negative policy rate. We're, I mean, of course, we're also we're already seeing negative rates in the interest rate market. Um, you know, short dated gilts and things are, uh, uh, have been negative and and, um, and things. Like, so, I'm, you know, of course, we might have negative long term interest rates. They're a feature of the the fixed income market. Uh, but as far as the the main policy rate of interest in the UK and in the US, uh, I would be surprised. If we see, well, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I'd be surprised if the if the if if the um, situation uh, deteriorates significantly from here. That would be the surprise to me. But uh, it, but then I wouldn't be surprised to see negative interest rates in some limited form. I I, I think there's a reluctance on the part of central bankers, uh, which I share, for uh, negative interest rates. I think there's some difficulties attached to that. But, you know, neither the Fed nor the Bank of England are ruling them out. I mean, it would be silly for them to rule it out because what the Fed and what the Bank of England wants at this moment in time is a low, uh, are low interest rates in, in, in the broader market. And, and by ruling out negative interest rates at this stage, that would necessarily increase interest rates slightly in the broader market because that, you know, the risk of even lower interest rates would be removed. So, I, you know, they're not going to turn around and say, oh, we're not doing it. But I think there is a, a, I think there is a majority reluctance to engage in that, which is, which is why I think there'd have to be a significant deterioration in the outlook for them to, um, for them to do so.
More quantitative easing would be would be the, the most obvious, the most obvious. Certainly for the Bank of England, the Bank of England's got plenty of scope for more quantitative e- easing. So there's there's more it can do before it has to, you know, before it would get to the negative pussy level. As you've said many times before, it's very important to have functioning markets in time, particularly in times of stress. And we've certainly been through some stress. Which of the central banks do you think scores an A for the way they've come through this and, and which have been found wanting? Oh, that's a tricky question, right? Be- because I'm generally against intervention in the markets, right? And, uh, and now, now you're asking me to score the central banks on, on how well they've intervened in the markets. I cannot tell you how important it is that the markets remain functional throughout. The one thing that would make me very, very concerned about the outlook for our economy, for the global economy, would be any dysfunction in the markets. So I'm sort of I'm going to give the devil his due in in this regard. I I, I think the the Federal Reserve have done an absolutely remarkable job in making sure that the markets have remained functional. And they're going to get an A because if if the Fed didn't do a remarkable job, it would be almost impossible for say the Bank of England to do a remarkable job after that. You know, if if the if the Fed failed, then the Bank of Japan and the ECB and the Bank of England just wouldn't stand much of a chance of, of, of doing a good job in, 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 that, uh, in those circumstances. So, uh, yeah, the, the Fed gets um, very high marks. The Bank of England is very, very close behind. All the central banks have done a decent job, you know, if you can get over the fact that intervention in the markets isn't, isn't something I like anyway. When you're looking at the Bank of England, of course, they do have a Bailey in charge, so they were naturally going to come through this very well, I'm sure. <laughs> So we're we're just coming to the end now. So I think the the main point I'm taking from today is the issue of don't be afraid to to rebalance uh, when it involves buying stocks at depressed prices, in particularly looking at property right now. It feels a bit similar to what we were talking about in March and April when the markets were in free fall. We were holding the conviction that we're holding the portfolios, we're holding the stocks, we're not panicking, and we're going to come through this. It's sort of a flip side of that coin is that you then start rebalancing to things that have got depressed prices. When we look back on this, it will prove to be a good course of action. So I think that's probably the main takeaway from today. Steve, thanks very much. And we'll catch up again next time. Thanks a lot.